Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. from John Cullerton, the head of the Illinois Senate, later in this half hour on the budget. But first, let's talk about those youthful offenders imprisoned by the state. Jennifer Volan-Katz is executive director of the John Howard Association. It's a group that monitors the programming and conditions in all of Illinois' congressional institutions, and she's found what she says is a troubling situation for some young inmates who are mostly from Chicago, and it's happening to them in southern Illinois. Yes, it's actually happening in one of our Illinois youth centers, uh, IYC Harrisburg, which is where kids who have been sentenced to state custody, it's one of the five facilities they might be sent to. IYC Harrisburg is in Saline County, and you're right, it's very far south, when the I think almost the southernmost part of the state. Um, and what's happening down there is a large number of kids are being prosecuted by the state's attorney in Saline County for behavior that is occurring inside of IYC Harrisburg. So in other words, these kids who are already in prison um, are getting new sentences, new charges. Some of them are pleading out. Some of them are going to trial uh, for behavior that's occurring inside the facility, which typically would be handled by the staff inside of a facility. Um, And the numbers are staggeringly different than what we typically see. It is not unheard of for a case to be referred to a state's attorney when uh, the behavior inside the facility is so violent or egregious. Um, It is, there is precedent for the department going to the local state's attorney and and asking that charges be filed, but it's really unusual and there's been a noticeable uptick of this happening all coming out of this one particular facility. Is it for behavior that would otherwise be considered a crime? Well, it really depends on the facts of the case and whose version of the facts you believe. So what it mostly is are fights. Some of, most of them, my understanding is, are youth fighting with each other and then staff getting in between to break them up and then um, going to the local law enforcement and saying that they've been assaulted. So some of the behavior um, might be something they would be charged for separately, unlikely. What we're hearing about are things that are being labeled as assault, but some of them are things like spitting or throwing a liquid as opposed to um, anything particularly physical or violent. And again, it can be youth doing this to other youth or youth doing this to staff. Um, And some of the youth are telling us that they feel that staff are inserting themselves when youth are fighting with each other, almost in order to claim that they've been assaulted by the youth that are fighting. Um, Can you give me uh, some idea of the magnitude of this, um, numbers that you're seeing versus what kind of things you might be seeing in other 
uh, youth centers? Sure. So it, typically, I would say in the last five to seven years, um, an average number of referrals to a state's attorney from the facility or from the Department of Juvenile Justice, probably around two. Might be a little bit less, might be a little bit higher, but that's sort of the average number. This year, we've already seen 12 cases filed coming out of Harrisburg. So that's a huge jump, and that number may be, uh, might have increased since I was last uh, notified. So it's at least 12, if not more. And the other noticeable difference is the nature of the behavior that is reason for seeking separate charges. Typically, um, what we have seen is behavior that is really violent, that is really dangerous, um, that when the department feels they have to go to a state's attorney, it's because whatever this youth has done is so dangerous, is so out of control, that they feel that they really don't have a choice, that they cannot manage the behavior inside the facility. What we're seeing coming out of Harrisburg is behavior that does not seem to be particularly dangerous or threatening. So that is also of huge concern. Has there been some kind of change of management or something that has changed to take what was, uh, you know, maybe a couple of cases and boost it up to the dozen you're seeing or more? So I don't think there's any one defining change that's created this, but there's a lot of speculation that some of this has to do with staff feeling that they don't have enough options to manage youth that are difficult. So I think it comes under the umbrella of larger reforms. And in particular, with our juvenile system, we have had this ongoing litigation, the RJ case. And as part of it, there has been a settlement agreement in place between the ACLU representing the plaintiffs and the Department of Juvenile Justice and the state of Illinois to um, come into compliance in a number of different areas. And a lot of that compliance has necessitated culture change, thinking about how we view juvenile justice differently. And one of the areas uh, that was ripe for change and where we've seen some change has to do with discipline. So the sanctions available for certain behaviors have changed. And long-term solitary confinement is not really an option for kids anymore in Illinois. And there's some speculation that staff are really struggling to figure out how to respond to youth that are difficult um, without having what used to be available to them to get through to the kid, to meet out a consequence they thought was harsh enough to make a statement. Without that, they feel unprotected. Um, it concerns it, it concerns those of us who are invested in juvenile justice reform, because as we've reformed our system, as we have right-sized our system, we always knew that right-sizing meant keeping low-level, nonviolent offenders out of, our, of state custody. So what that would mean is that the kids that would end up would be those who were there for the most serious offenses, would likely be the kids that were highest risk and highest need. And that seems to be what's happening. And that's appropriate. 
um, in terms of what we as a state said we wanted to do in terms of juvenile justice. Now, the next hurdle is figuring out how we manage that and how we do that in a fair, humane way. And there is fairly universal recognition that confinement is not a humane way to treat children and that it is damaging even for those who don't suffer from mental illness or mental health problems or cognitive delays or disabilities. It is really horribly impactful of of the brain, of the developing brain. I mean, it, it cannot be overstated that solitary confinement for kids is just universally unacceptable because of the damage it can do and has done. But it, from the perspective of the, the corrections personnel, um, what they may see their or what they may feel they're seeing is a concentration of the most violent people and they may fear for their safety. Um, what are their options in that case when they are in fact facing a, a somewhat more dangerous population? Sure, and I, I think that's a, a legitimate concern and I think it's something that uh, needs to be addressed and it's my understanding that there were trainings around this and that the department had ways of addressing this. It seems as if those ways must have fallen short if staff are feeling threatened. I would say first of all that it's about giving them other options, giving them a list of graduated sanctions so that each and every person who works inside the facility understands what's available to them and also a lot of training around de-escalation techniques. We know that if you can get in sooner and clamp down on the behavior quicker, we can put an end to things before they get more bigger or out of control. So I think that those kind of trainings probably need to be increased. I think that there probably needs to be an opportunity for staff to be heard and to give some ideas as to what they think would keep them safe. But I also think that we as a state need to realize that part of this is the kind of culture that exists inside large correctional institutions. And that's why large correctional institutions are really not appropriate for youth. When you have smaller facilities, when you have youth closer to home, when you have higher staff to youth ratios, you don't see this kind of thing happening, at least not with this kind of frequency, that the ability of staff to know the kids, to be able to help the kids, to intervene and get these kids what they need or respond to them in a way that's going to be beneficial for everybody involved is much greater. Are the individual youth centers uh, equipped to or capable of doing the kind of training that needs to happen here? Um, they absolutely should be. There's no reason to believe they're not. There is separate training staff inside the department. There is um, all sorts of experts available through the consent decree. There are federally court-appointed monitors who have expertise in some of these areas. So there's no reason to believe that these kind of trainings you know, aren't possible. And it's my understanding that they've been done. So. I don't want to say that this is a brand new idea, um, but what the situation in Harrisburg tells me is not enough of this has gone on. And are you seeing this to some degree in other areas, uh, maybe not as much as in Harrisburg, but uh, in the areas where you do have the large facility? We are not right now. Um, 
right now Harrisburg is really the only one where we're getting these kind of numbers. But, but the problem that you described, though, could be a situation that's happening in, uh, in other places, at least of the concentration of, of the more dangerous people. Is this a problem that could be waiting to happen elsewhere? I suppose that it could. I certainly hope that it's not. Um, I guess the other facility we'd look to that, that offers the best comparison is probably IYC St. Charles, which is also a larger facility. Um, it houses boys, and I believe that its security designations are the same as they are at Harrisburg. You know, one of the things you have to look at is the surrounding community. And I do think that part of what's happening is that the state's attorney in Saline County um, um, both the f the former who recently passed away and the assistant who has stepped in to take his place have been very vocal about the fact that they are willing to pursue these kinds of charges, that they think this behavior is problematic, that their constituents work inside these facilities, and that they're going to do what they need to to protect them. So I think that part of the calculation is the surrounding community and how they view the situation. And I just have to ask this because of how things are in our prison system generally, but is there a racial component in this as well? Absolutely. Um, one of the things we know about Harrisburg is that it is majority young black men from the city of Chicago. And it is one of the most noticeably disparate facilities in terms of the composition of the youth that live there and the staff that work there. We talked about the problem of uh, Harrisburg and, and similar situations. What can you do? Well, that's a really good question. Um, so first of all, we think that the entire state of Illinois needs to go, needs to understand what's going on here. Because the result of this, just so I'm clear, this is a problem because the consequences for these youth that are being separately charged, they're facing time, adult time, inside of the Illinois Department of Corrections. So some of them are leaving our juvenile system and going directly into the Department of Corrections and facing lengthy sentences for things like spitting. And we've got to really think about what we're doing to these kids and how that's going to play out because we're taking a bad situation and making it infinitely worse when our response is to further incarcerate and to incarcerate these individuals in the adult system, not the juvenile system. So what's at stake here are lives, and we need to be very conscious of that. So who has to handle this. Is this something that you have to talk to the department about? Is this something that we need new laws about? I think there's a number of different actors that can, can and I think should, and I hope will, respond to this. I think that the Department of Juvenile Justice needs to work with their staff, needs to figure out a way to stop this. Certainly they cannot stop people from going to local law enforcement and filing charges, but there's obviously a disconnect and a lack of communication that this situation has gotten as far out of control as it has. I would leave it to others to just talk to the criminal justice actors in the judiciary in Saline County to find out why they think this is necessary, why 
the prosecutorial discretion is playing out so differently there than it is in other counties that house youth centers. I think we need to go back to the litigation and talk to the federally court-appointed monitors and experts and ask them how we solve this problem. I think we need to engage the communities and the families. I think local leaders need to be involved and the governor needs to be involved. I mean, this is a really big problem. The rights of these kids are at stake and their lives are are being seriously impacted by this. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and that was Jennifer Volan Katz, executive director of the John Howard Association. Officials at the Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice say there haven't been as many official referrals to local prosecutors as Volan Katz says, but they acknowledge that individual members of the correction staff can ask the local state's attorney to prosecute, and that's happening too. For our next story, we'll focus on Springfield, somewhat north of Harrisburg. This past week, Governor Bruce Rauner invited Illinois lawmakers back, strongly, to try one more time to pass a balanced budget. I'm calling the General Assembly back here to Springfield, a continuous special session that will start next week and stay in effect until a balanced budget is passed. We have tough, urgent choices to make, and the legislature must be present to make them. We have little time to change the direction of our state, to come together around a budget compromise that creates a brighter future for all the families in Illinois. Illinois Senate President John Cullerton, one of the top two Democrats in the General Assembly, sat down with me for a few minutes after Governor Rauner called that special session, and he was pretty firm about his views on the matter. My response to the governor calling a special session is, where have you been? Uh, We in the Senate have been working since last December on a balanced budget and reforms. We have the so-called grand bargain that Senator Rodonio and I worked on. Uh, We were making great progress until the governor kind of hijacked it and told the Republicans to vote no. So we kept on working with them and then at the end we in the Senate passed a balanced budget including revenue uh, and we picked the spending level, the exact spending level that the governor introduced himself on February 15th in his own budget. We also recognize the fact that he said he wanted reforms, so we passed pension reform, we passed school funding reform, we passed local government consolidation reform, we passed um, property tax freeze, which he asked for. And all of those things are over in the House or on his desk, including workers' comp reform, by the way. So the question is, what would we do in a special session that we haven't already done? Uh, The answer is uh, really that the House hasn't done all those things. And so I think maybe the House needs to have a special session. And, of course, anything that they can work out would have to be in a bipartisan fashion. You can't pass a bill without 71 votes in the House. There's only 67 Democrats. And so I think that's where the action is going to be. We certainly would work with the governor. I'd go to a meeting if he wanted to call one. We haven't had one with all the leaders since December 6th of last year. But the Senate is very proud of the fact that we voted and worked together with Republicans on every uh, bill I just talked about. uh, We got their input. Although the the senators, some senators, have complained that in the end it was a Democrat budget that went out of there. That's not the case at all. Um, The fact is that the budget that passed, and this is really important, 
the exact dollar amount that, of spending was the governor's number that he introduced on February 15th. And in our negotiations with Republicans, they said that there was some magic to not having a tax go close to 5%, because that's what the last one was. So they said they'd only go to 4.9%, 4.95, and we honored that. <clears throat> so we have their tax spending level and their tax rate. And the way we did that was because of the discussions we had with Republicans in our extensive discussions about how to put the budget together. So it is a bipartisan budget. The fact that they didn't vote for it was only because Rauner told them not to at the very end. What prospects do you see, though, for the House uh, coming anywhere near uh, what even you passed? Well, Craig, first of all, we are, you know, only able to vote in the Senate. I can't go over and vote in the House. I can't sign bills. I'm not the governor. And so it's really going to be the dynamic over there. But it has to be bipartisan. <clears throat> now, if you think about it, uh, if you need Republican votes for a budget and for a tax, um, and you see what we did in the Senate, and by the way, every senator, you know, when your senator voted for something, that makes it a little easier for you to do the same. We went first. That's a little harder. But I would think that um, the spending level of the governor's introduced budget is a pretty safe place to start. And I think that's what you'd expect the Republicans who are willing to vote for a tax over there and vote for a spending bill. That's where they'd want to start as well. So I, I think that what we passed should be very close to what the House should be able to come up with. What are, what are the pressures that are, are going to move this along? I mean, we're, we're seeing something different every day. Uh, now we're hearing warnings about the state's credit rating and possibly dropping to junk status. Is, is that enough to move this state? Craig, this is a disaster, and it's totally uh, self-imposed. Uh, we have a great state. We, the economy is actually doing fairly well. The unemployment rate's low. The city of Chicago is kind of booming. The fact is that corporate headquarters are flocking here. A lot of college graduates from all over the Midwest are moving here to, to live and work. Um, and so there's other parts of the state that are doing well as, as well. Our agricultural uh, areas and other certain communities are doing very well. It's just the state government that's messed up because we haven't done a budget in two and a half years. And the problem is because the governor has had a problem learning how to take a win. His own education secretary, and I'm sure she was telling the truth, and the governor told her this, it's only 90% of what he wants, therefore he's going to veto it. Well, that's not how politics works. So um, it was a very fair bill. We funded... Um, uh, we've ended the worst funding formula in the nation, and we're going forward with a new funding formula, and yet we're letting everybody who got what they got last year to keep that, that their own money. We're finally ending the anomaly of Chicago not getting treated for their pensions like the rest of the state, and we eliminate any special deals in the funding formula so it's one size fits all for the whole state, and so that's why it's fair. That bill is Senate Bill 1. That's a great bill. That's part of the reforms that we passed. And so uh, and that passed the House as well. So actually, we, we really have accomplished a lot. We just have to finish the deal, and most of the action is going to be over in the House. What do you say to the assertion, though, that the, uh, the, the school aid formula bill, that, that's this evidence-based uh, bill that has, has passed, uh, is the governor says, well, it's, 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 it's pretty good, but it gives Chicago too much. Yeah. Uh, it's total politics. Um, he should know better. Um, I've talked to him about the bill. He said, well, if the rest of the stuff I want passes, then I'll be for it. 
So it's just a game he's playing to try to withhold stuff from Chicago, claiming it's unfair and a bailout, even though it's not, just so he can try to put some pressure on the mayor uh, to see if he would put pressure on us. That ain't going to work. In the meantime, the downstate uh, areas uh, that benefit tremendously by this this, uh, bill, um, the Republicans who voted no are getting beat up over it. And so I think it would be a really good idea for the governor to sign that bill because otherwise it might be a type of bill that would be overridden. And that's one of the accomplishments that we've made in this, se- uh, this, this session. Is it possible that this special session, if the politics keep going the way they've been going, uh, could end up being simply uh, passing some kind of bill to keep the schools open, some kind of stopgap measure just to get the school doors open? No. Uh, the Senate Democrats have voted for a balanced budget, meaning a funded balanced budget. I don't think the Senate Democrats are interested in um, passing a budget and authorization to spend without the money. There were 500 school districts that said, we don't even want to have authorization to spend money when we're not getting the money. And it's just, we got to bring this to a close. This is a, a crisis. It's not just schools. It's it's everybody who's getting paid late. It's all the people that provide health insurance uh, for state employees, university employees. They're not getting paid. We owe bills that are, you know, 500 um, days old. Where there's going to be universities that will be closing. There's no MAP grant funding. So all these things have to be resolved. We showed in the Senate, with the Republicans' help, that we can pass a balanced budget with revenue, with reforms. The House should just do the same, and then we'll be home free. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that there should be more pain behind uh, what's already happened, but it's. I guess the figures are somewhere around 90% of government is still being funded because of court orders, consent decrees, agreements. In the old days, <laughs> when government, when you got to the end of a budget, if there was no budget, there was no money, and people were really hurt, and it took you about a week to, to solve things. No, that's true. There's, there's, there's been, um, the pressure hasn't been as great because of court orders, consent decrees, and, and um, uh, bills that we've kind of pre-authorized to be appropriated, uh, continuing appropriations is what we call them. And that's because, you know, some unions went to court, state employees have been paid, but this time out, we are not in a mood to do a stopgap, as I indicated. And so there is no funding for schools, okay? Um, there's, and the problems that, that have, the slow pay, it's accelerating now. We owe $14.5 billion. It'll be $24 billion by, by next June 1st, which is it's just impossible. We have to resolve this. We know what the elements are of a resolution. We've passed it out of the Senate. The House can do the same. The governor's got to understand he's not going to get 90% of what he wants. That's not how it works. 50%, 51% would be just fine. And so um, the actions in the House, they have to do what the Senate's already done, come together, compromise, work in a bipartisan fashion. How much of how this all ends up is going to be about who gets the blame? for it. It seems it, it seems to be the way a lot of the rhetoric is going. I would hope that the governor would stop campaigning for just a few weeks and see if we can get a budget. I think that he has a better chance of winning if he has a budget than not. If there's no budget, I can't see how this guy could ever get reelected. So the fact is we should focus on governing right now and let the politics take care of itself. And so there shouldn't be any, the blame is at the, at the, at the ballot box. 
And again, if we don't have a budget by next year, th there's going to be uh, hell to pay for any incumbent, I would think, who's on the ballot. And so we just should focus on doing what we got elected to do. Do you think another meeting of the of the leaders would do any good? The last one was December 6th of last year. Uh, that's the governor who calls those meetings. He's chosen not to. Um, we worked together in the Senate with Senator Rodonio and myself, and we made great progress. And as I said, we came up with all of the work product that we developed was bipartisan. So the same thing has to happen. Uh, if they just do it in the House and that works, that's fine with me. I'll be happy to attend any meetings. And, of course, anything they pass, we have to sign off on ourselves. And now, is that going to be a difficulty uh, when, it, when something bounces back to you? If, if it, is it going to come back and, and be a problem in the Senate? The reason, uh, obviously, I don't know what might come back, but think about it, Craig. It's going to have to be bipartisan. You can't pass anything without both Republicans and Democrats. So I can't imagine, for example, that their budget, the Republicans are going to want to spend more money than we, the Senate Democrats, passed, right? Uh, the tax increase is not going to be any higher than the one we passed. So that kind of limits where you are in terms of the budget. So I, I can't imagine that it certainly can be tweaked as far as the reforms are concerned. Whatever the, the House uh, agrees to, we probably would go along. He makes it sound so easy, but Senate President John Cullerton is the first to admit that it's not. We'll see how far they get this week. I'd like to thank Senator Cullerton and Jenny Volan-Katz of the John Howard Association for spending time with us this week. For our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That's cbschicago.com. You can also find our podcasts on play.it. I'll be back next week with another edition of that Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.